Ross, thanks, Cathy, for reading. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Hope you're having a good day so far. Nice to have the sun out. If you're um, with us here for the first time, you're visiting, um, really great to have you here. And, uh, and well, I've just noticed a couple of people who've been away on COVID duty. Um, welcome back for some of you. Uh, <laughs> it's good to have everyone together today. What a, it's a, a good Friday, isn't it, uh, where Jesus died for us. Um, friends, we're going to focus our time on um, just on verses 30. In, in chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel, verses 33 to 41. So if you've got a Bible, um, have it open in front of you, maybe your phone. Uh, I'll have a few things up on the screen as well. There's also an outline in your bulletin you would have received as you walked in, so that might be handy to have that in front of you. You can scribble down a few notes um, and uh, we'll follow along. I'm going um, to pray for us and we'll ask God to help us understand his word today. Now let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love for us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, without, without uh, him and his sacrifice for us, uh, we are lost. We are far from you. And so, Lord, today we pray that you would draw us closer to you by your word as we focus on, um, on your love for us in the Lord Jesus as he died for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So I was thinking during the week, when you think of um, iconic lines from movies, uh, you probably think of a few ones, I'm sure, for example, um, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, from uh, Predator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. None of you know that, of course, it's one of the classic movies, some of you know it, yeah, excellent, great. Um, I was watching a, movie, watching a show the other day and they quoted that as an iconic line on a movie, far from it, but If It Bleeds, You Can Kill It. Um, Maybe this is the one, maybe this is, this is the iconic line, look up in the sky, is it a bird, is it a plane, it's Superman, yes, it's Superman. Now of course that quote goes right back to that, look at that old picture of Superman, he looks a bit pudgy doesn't he, you know, um, <laughs> that goes right back to the 1950s series of the adventures of Superman, all black and white, you can see it a bit on YouTube if you like, uh, it's quite interesting watching it. Uh, very slow moving though, very compared to the latest Supermans, you know, the Marvel ones or whichever Superman. Is it Marvel? Anyway, that's all right. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, thank you. Um, these onlookers, so in this classic scene, this, this iconic scene of Superman, they ask an important question, of course. They ask, who is that? That's what they are. Who is this man? That's what they ask. Now, in the same way, that's the question that. Mark, the writer of this gospel that we've been reading through, if you've been coming to church over the last little while here, we've been reading through Mark's gospel and that, that's the question that all Mark has been asking. Who is this man? Who is this man Jesus? Who is this man that can do the things he does and what does that mean for me today? That's a good question and a question I want to come back to today uh, as we look at this passage in Mark 15. Now, of course, we're not talking about a Hollywood movie star uh, we're talking about history. We're talking about Jesus, the carpenter from, Na from Nazareth, who changed the world. Now today, we reach a climax in this gospel. Jesus' identity is declared. It's confessed, but in the most unlikely of places, by the most unlikely of people. But to get to that point, we need to take ourselves back to Jesus' crucifixion. So Mark 15, verse 33. And as you can see from the outline, we can divide this passage up into two sections. 
And in each section, Mark, the, the author here, wants us to see three things. A sign, a cry from Jesus, and a response from those gathered around the cross. So those three things, and we'll look at those uh, twice under each little heading in our outline. Now, I've given the first section the title, Jesus Dies Forsaken. Okay, well, can you spot that first sign? The first sign, it's in verse 33, isn't it? At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Uh, Dr. Paul Barnett, he's an ancient historian, reports that Thallus, uh, Thallus was a Samaritan historian of the first century, Thallus referred to um, a period of darkness in Palestine around the same time. Now scholars believe this darkness that Thallus refers to and the one recorded in the Gospels are the same thing. Now some people have suggested that this was an eclipse but that's unlikely because it was, it was midday and it was a full moon because of the Passover time, uh, which was the, the period of time we're looking at here. In any case, signs always point to something, don't they? It's a sign, it points to something, it tells us some information. Whatever it was its scientific cause, this darkness, this sign, symbolises the wrath of God in judgment. Uh, Jesus taking on our sin, our rejection of God, and bearing the punishment for our sin. You see, darkness in the Bible is always, uh, always associated with evil. Well, the cry is next. The cry is in verse 34. Have a look at verse 34 with me. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Now, Mark uses the original Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking, really to capture more of the drama of the scene. And then Ross did a spectacular job of pronouncing this, and I'll see if I can do the same, Ross. Um, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. How was that? Is that all right? You've got to get the throat thing going, yeah. Um, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and we read a bit of that before. Kathy read it to us. Where the psalmist is crying out to God in anguish. It's the second and final time that Jesus cries out in anguish to his father. Now, the first was in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, a couple chapters ago. As Jesus bears the wrath of God for our sin on the cross, because that's what he's doing at that moment, taking the punishment that we deserve for pushing God away, he's separated from his father. He's forsaken for our sake. Now, of course, that's what sin does. The Bible's word is sin, it's our rejection of God. It's a rejection of God's ways. It's placing our ways above his ways. It's saying that we rule rather than God rules. And not surprisingly, when we have that attitude, well, it separates us from God. Well, finally, there's the response of those looking on. Mockery of Jesus. So verse 35... When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. So they're mocking Jesus here. They're mocking him. And the wine vinegar was just to, well, it was just to keep him alive longer. That's, that's, it wasn't anything tasty. Uh, it, it was to keep him alive longer. It wasn't for comfort. It was, oh, yuck, sort of thing. 
uh, so that Elijah would appear. They're, they're, having a go, they're mocking him, just like in 2 Kings, uh, when Elijah was taken up to heaven. He continues, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes, down, comes to take him down. What, what, what does Mark want us to see here as we read uh, this, this, um, this account? He wants us to see that upon meeting Jesus, nothing has changed with this group of people. They meet the Son of God there, nothing has changed. What do they do? They mock him. Unlike the centurion who we meet in a moment, uh, this group remains under the wrath of God. They're mocking Jesus, they're rejecting Jesus. Nothing's changed with them. Mark wants the reader to understand that this is actually the fate of all who reject God, reject Jesus. So, Jesus dies forsaken. Why? Well, it's the second point in our outline, so we could be forgiven. Again, there's a cry from Jesus, there's a sign, and there's a response. So, have a look at verse 37. We start with the cry this time. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Uh, John's Gospel fills in this scene a little, with a little bit more detail, recording that Jesus' last words were, it is finished. These are words of victory. They're not words of defeat. Yes, forsaken, but a mission accomplished. For Jesus has died in the place of sinners. Like me. It's like you. He's bearing the wrath of God. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God is now possible. And next is the sign. The sign is a demonstration of that. So verse 38, the temple curtain, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This sign, the curtain, symbolised, well the curtain at least, symbolised the separation between us and God. So because of our rejection of God, uh, which we spoke of a few moments ago, uh, there were two temple curtains One was the entrance uh, to an area of the temple known as the Court of Israel. Uh, Only Jewish men were permitted access to this area. Anyone who went to the temple could see this curtain. You can almost see it as you walk by, um, Jew or non-Jew, Gentile. The second curtain hung at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. Now that's a a, a small sacred place symbolising God's presence in the temple. And only the high priests could enter this holy of holies once a year uh, following a special sacrifice on what was called the day of atonement a special day in the jewish religious calendar atonement effectively means dealing with sin uh, which is what the sacrifice was for on that day that second curtain is what mark's referring to in verse 38 so why why was it torn in two well the, the, the significance of jesus death as a once and for all atoning sacrifice, dealing with sin, for our sin means access to God. Access to God is no longer restricted to a high priest once a year. It's now open to anyone, at any time, anyone who trusts in Jesus, who believes in Jesus. And the curtain being torn from right at the top, and it would have been a very thick curtain, by the way, This symbolism of the curtain being torn right at the top to the bottom emphasises that this open access is complete. 
completely open and it's God's work who enables it. <clears throat> I am... Um, uh, Michelle and I came across, well, we, we've, um, we've been given just last week, we got given some tickets to this, uh, what's well, Crowded House over in Barrel tomorrow. Um, and we're not huge Crowded House fans, but, you know, we'll go. It'll be fun, I think. Um, I'm Michelle's. Yeah, like them, good. Yeah. Um, no, I don't mind them. I've got their albums and things. That's all right. I, I, it's great to get given tickets. And um, I don't know how we're going to get there, by the way. We haven't worked that out yet because all the Parkinson's closed and all that. We'll, we'll be right. Um, but it's you know it's nice to be given tickets, and I, I don't mind the band. It's good fun. I get to I might I might um you know get to see the those famous people, and the the Teskey brothers are the are the people who are backing up the band, and they um they've got a distinct sound and a bit of fun as well. Uh, but I thought wouldn't it wouldn't it be cool to actually meet them? Like that'd be cool. I'd like to meet Neil Finn, and um I think he's the, still the lead singer. This is how much I know about Crowded House. I wouldn't mind meeting the band. I wouldn't mind having a look at what guitars they play and that sort of thing. Wouldn't that be fun? I wouldn't mind being able to go backstage and meet, meet the people involved, um, shake the hands with the Teskey brothers. Apparently they all look the same. I don't know. Um, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be great? Full access backstage. See, friends, um, that, this temple being torn from top to bottom gives us full access to God like a backstage pass at a crowded house concert where we actually can have a right and full and, uh, and a right relationship with God. That's what the death of Jesus accomplishes, torn from top to bottom, free access, complete access. Uh, you don't need a priest. You don't need anyone else. You just need Jesus. You just need to believe in Jesus and you can know God fully. Well, finally, there's the response. It's a response from, from the, um, the centurion in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It's interesting, isn't it? Mark's reference to women as witnesses is actually powerful evidence. This is eyewitness testimony of what actually happened. You see, in Jesus' day, uh, first century Roman Empire, Palestine, the testimony of women was invalid. It's hard to believe, but true. If Mark were making this stuff up, he would not have included he would not have included women as witnesses. But let's think about this response from the centurion. It's a response of repentance and faith from a most unlikely of people in a most unlikely of places. I want to take a moment to think about this man. To get to his rank, well, he would have been around for a while. He would have seen a few things, uh, fought many battles. He would have known death and all that went with it. But now, having the reach the rank of centurion, he found himself in one of the farthest flung corners of the empire. It was hardly a posting of privilege. And his assignment certainly wouldn't have been described as glorious. 
commander of Pilate's execution squad. Day by day, he carried out the orders handed down to him, cleaning the world in the most barbaric way of the criminal scum of Palestine. Sort of sounds like a first century Roman propaganda, anyway. Perhaps he would have come home each day to his wife and kids and tried to forget what went on. The cries of the dying, the contempt of the crowds for the victim and the executioner. But I suspect his sensitivities would have been long since dulled to death and dying. One death on Golgotha, as the hill was called, would be much like any other, no matter how many ways the soldiers would try to spice things up for their own entertainment. But today, as he, he marched his men out again to that God-forsaken hill, as they herd, herded the prisoners like cattle to the slaughter, this man would supervise the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And suddenly, out of the blue, he found himself affected by his death. He had seen it all before. And yet something about this man in his death made such an impression that he cried out, surely this man was the son of God. This was no ordinary death. You see, from a human point of view, that's not the conclusion that most people, well, that most would, would come, come to Jesus at this time, at this place in this moment. This pathetic figure really uh, was just one of many more losers who littered the roadsides of Palestine. Tributes to the ruthless efficiency of the Roman justice system. To hang on a cross was not only humiliating, and most were crucified with no clothes on, but to the Jews, to be crucified <coughs> was, was understood as being cursed by God. Abandoned by him, beyond hope of salvation. That's what crucifixion meant to the Jews. It was a clear sign of being rejected by God. And the words spoken by Jesus in verse 34 from Psalm 22 seem to confirm this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bit of an irony here, isn't there? That these words of Jesus that he cried out would cause this centurion to believe that Jesus is in fact God's son the one in whom God is well pleased. The object of God's constant care and love and blessing is here hanging to die on a Roman cross. How does that happen, that he comes to that belief? See, maybe it was in Jesus' anguished cry, the, the sincerity and pain in his voice cut through the built-up hardness of this man. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was the conversation Jesus had with the two criminals on either side of him, as Luke records the end of his gospel. Maybe it was Jesus' sense of purpose and trust in God his Father. Maybe it was the earthquake. Maybe it was the darkness. And in the end, we can really only guess what moved this centurion to make his confession, to respond in the way he does, to believe. But at this point, he got it. He got it. He understood the cross. While others stood mocking and threw insults, this man believed that on the cross, God's innocent son was torn apart from his father, 
forsaken and separated. His answer to who is this man was right. Surely this man was the Son of God. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? I know a lot of you do. But do you know Jesus like the centurion knew Jesus? The good news on this Good Friday is that you can, and even more. I want to invite you to do that. Uh, Jesus has introduced himself to you today in these words from Mark's Gospel. Uh, Well, if you haven't already, why don't you introduce yourself to him? I want to pray for us, and uh, I'll pray a prayer that, that, well, that does that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've introduced yourself to us like you did to that centurion 2,000 odd years ago at the cross. Lord, may we today confess your identity, that you truly are, Lord Jesus, the Son of God who died for our sin. Lord, thank you that in your death you've made us right. You've made us right with you perfect relationship with you, full access because of your death for us, taking the punishment for our rejection of you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.